turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. All right, I want to just find out, how many of you are into gardening? Okay, it's okay, you can admit it and come out and just go public. Is, is there, or you got a few folks? Okay, very interesting. That's, we must be in suburbia land. I can't believe that we don't have that many. When I uh, grew up as a kid, um, it, I was in the garden, but I wasn't into gardening, okay? And you got to understand what this is. We, uh, I grew up in, as far as junior high and high school in southeastern Minnesota. We had moved from Montana, and we, we showed up in this extremely fertile place called southeastern Minnesota, Rochester specifically. And we had, uh, behind our house, we had this really large field. And my dad, uh, being from the Department of Agriculture, he was going to make full use of that field. So we'd rent this rototiller. And he, we just have this huge space that we'd rototill. And this became the family garden, okay? Now, my dad really thought this was a good idea with four boys. You know, he had all the labor he needed. And he was, he was good at giving instruction. So we went out there. And I, I have a lot of unpleasant memories about our garden, okay? I mean, not only did it have to be specifically laid out. My dad is, is a perfectionist there. And so every plant was put exactly where it needed to be. The rows were spaced according to the maximum growth of each plant. I mean, he had this all figured out. Uh, we didn't want to have soil erosion. So you actually went against the contour of the hills. And then you had to have these little furrows. And they had... And you had each seed planted exactly the way it's supposed to be. You took a steel fork rake. You put it actually between all the rows there. It was, it was, it was really a sight to behold. Really, it's art, okay? But it was our family garden. And we'd be out there working, and like, in the morning, we had to get every single weed. And I always kind of thought at different times, I'm, I'm out there weeding in the summer before it got too hot, early in the morning. And I wondered, you know, if I did something real bad and I ended up going to some sort of boys' prison camp, I'm sure I'd be doing things like this. You know what I mean? Out there sweating, you know, and the sweat's coming off my forehead onto the plants, perfect, you know what I'm saying? If we didn't get rain, then we'd be out there watering it all the time. And so we had this garden. Now, I didn't like all the hard work of the gardening, but let me assure you, I liked the fruit that came from it. I tell you what, there was nothing like fresh-cut vegetables. And we had it all. We had radishes, lettuce dill we had cucumbers tomatoes we had anything you might imagine we had in our garden and when it came time for harvesting like getting those yellow wax beans i mean you literally you take them you cut them you take them to the kitchen mom washes them about 20 minutes later you're eating them with some butter on top i mean it is absolutely outstanding now i'm not into gardening and weeding so much but i am into eating okay it is it is something that i've i'm I'm perfecting and i've been working on it now for quite a few years I just loved the produce that came from the garden. And every gardener, just like every farmer, you plant seeds, do the work, get the weeds out. You expect you're going to get a harvest. That is by divine design. Let me tell you, God, he is a great gardener. And he has planted the seeds of faith. He has planted the seeds of the gospel of what it means to really know him. God fully expects that there is going to be fruit from his investment. It is by divine design. Every gardener works this way and works upon that principle. But what in the world really is spiritual fruit? I mean, okay, I got the seeds and I understand plants. You plant this, out comes a radish. I got that. You do this, you put this seed, get carrots. But spiritual fruit, what is that? And why is this so important to God? I mean, why, why is God into spiritual fruit? What in the world is it? And really an important question is, how is spiritual fruit produced? What is that? If this is really important to God, and he expects this is going to happen as people, then we ought to know how it's produced. Well, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, 
you're going to find a very significant lesson that Jesus is going to give on what true faith looks like and what it's intended to produce. Jesus is going to give a picture that is going to be absolutely unforgettable. It is a picture of a spiritually dead nation. And so you remember, Jesus is now, he has made his way uh, to Jerusalem for the final week. And Matthew is thematically arranging these subjects to show you what exactly is happening with Jesus and the full intention of his ministry. And so when you come to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, we're going to find a rather staggering picture. It says, verse 18, now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. This is put in here for us to fully know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus had hunger just like we do. He is, yeah, you see him doing all these things like miracles, and you're like, well, he's just God. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He has all the needs, the wants, even the hunger that we do. And so he came in the morning. He's returning. He's coming back from Bethany. He is actually making his way into Jerusalem, and he becomes hungry. In verse 19, he sees a lone fig tree on the road. Now, just a little word about fig trees. Fig trees were extremely popular in Israel. They were all over the place. Um, they were they had two primary functions. One was shade. These trees got to be about 20 feet tall and about 20 feet wide. They were an excellent source of shade. You find all these mentions in the Old Testament about a man laying under his fig tree because that's where you got shade. You wanted to have fig trees. You didn't want to be cool. So you literally would go and lay under your fig tree. But not only to provide shade, it was one of their most common source of food because it produced these figs. These figs would be dried. They had a high sugar content and they'd put these into cakes. Okay, and so you didn't just go out to Dunkin' Donuts if you want a little sugar surplus in your diet. You ate figs and they were in these cakes. And so they ate figs all the time. They dried them and they put them in these cakes. And what is taking place here, this is right before Passover. It's spring. So we're looking here at about late March, early April. And this is the time where the fig tree would put out these blossoms, and in these blossoms would be these little buds. And these little buds, would, you could, they were edible, and they were sweet. In fact, if the, tree, if the fig tree didn't put out these little buds, that actually indicated that that tree wouldn't produce figs later in the fall. And so this is what happened, still happens today. In the spring, out comes these leafy fig trees. Here are these little buds. You can actually eat them. Uh, the, the Arabs call them taksh, T-A-Q-S-H, would be the transliteration on that. And they eat these things. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's hungry. He sees a lone fig tree by the road. But far more than just hunger, Jesus is about ready to give a very significant lesson. He came to it, and he found nothing on it except leaves only. So he comes to this tree fully expecting to find fruit, and it has nothing. It looks like it should be fruitful. It's got all these leaves. It's the lone fig tree. And he comes and he starts looking, and guess what? No food. Nothing. The apostles, they're all hanging out with Jesus. They're, they're watching this. And then, notice what it says. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once, the fig tree withered literally the tree dies with a statement he he curses this fig tree in a sense that he he actually causes it to die and you're like well 
what's going on here? Is the pressure getting to Jesus? Is all this, all these people that are after him and the Pharisees and the scribes, are they kindly wearing him down? Is, is he just angry and he just kind of makes this statement out of anger and causes a tree to die? <gasps> just imagine the ecological implications of that tree dying. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's a segment of society that would be really upset that this one tree died, okay? No? Actually, Jesus is giving a lesson. He is painting a picture. This is a parable and action. Just like a farmer would call out any tree that doesn't produce fruit because it's, it's taking up space, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's giving them a picture. This tree is not producing fruit. It doesn't have the buds that a person could eat, indicating that it's not going to bear fruit later on in the fall. And he causes it to wither. And all, you've got to imagine the disciples. They're like watching Jesus looking. He's looking, and all of a sudden he makes this statement, no longer should there be any fruit. <laughs> And this tree just literally dies, and, and the, the, the stages of just it falling apart and dying and withering quickly become apparent. Now, when it says it died, or it actually, he, it actually uh, immediately, it says, this fig tree starts withering, it doesn't mean that it just instantaneously went down to the ground, but the process was evident, and it started. And so they see this, and what is going on here? Well, let me tell you about fig trees. Not only were they all over Israel, but a fig tree was, some, was, this, was something that was used to symbolize Israel itself. Like, for instance, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, there's this statement where the Lord actually makes to the prophet Isaiah. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. He says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your forefathers, I saw them as the fruit, the earliest fruit. They believed in me. They trusted me. No, they, they weren't perfect, but they had a faith in me. They were deemed righteous because of their faith in me. They bore fruit, fruit from their lives as a result of their relationship with me. But he says, your forefathers were like a fig tree in its first season. They are bearing fruit, but then he said, but they came to Baal Peor and that and devoted themselves to shame, and they came as detestable as that which they loved. And what he's doing is he's referencing this event that takes place in Numbers 25 during the Exodus, where the people of Israel, they literally go with the Moabites and they worship Baal, their, their God, and they actually bow down to him. And God just literally creates judgment upon them. But what he's doing there is he's telling them, Israel... Is like a fig tree. They knew that. And you see what's happening here is Jesus is giving them a picture. This isn't about the fig tree so much as it's about a nation. You see, the nation of Israel was to bear fruit unto God because of their relationship with him. And think about it. They had this beautiful temple. They had all these sacrifices. There was work going on. There was all these priests. There were people giving. There was, there was a lot of activity but you remember when we looked at this a couple weeks ago, when Jesus comes to the temple and thematically, Jesus, Matthew is arranging his topics. Jesus is actually on his way to the temple. And once he cleanses that temple for the second time, he did it the first time at the beginning of his ministry. The second time with his every flip of the table, he's saying, what you're doing is not it. I want my people and my house to be a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've got action, you've got activity, you've got buildings, you've got people doing things and running around like rats in a maze, but you don't have authentic relationship with me. 
You're going through rituals, routines, and motions. But I know your heart. And all this activity, it's like foliage on a fig tree. Minus real fruit that comes from relationship with me. And I will not have it. In fact, I am bringing judgment upon you. Now, how did the, how did the leaders of Israel treat Jesus? They were, like it says in verse 15 in chapter 21, they were indignant with him. They hated him. They did not want him as their Messiah. They would not repent when he said, I am calling the nation to repentance because you are off track. They're saying, no way. We got our own religion. We're happy with the way things are. And you're messing things up. People are calling you the son of David, the Messiah. We don't like it. And we're going to put an end to you. In fact, we are working on plans this very hour. And Jesus is saying, let me give you a picture of what's happening. I am bringing judgment upon Israel Because they're not bearing fruit, the fruit that comes from relationship. They look like it, but they didn't have it. You know why Jesus curses the fig tree? He's not angry at trees that don't produce fruit. Don't misunderstand me. He's angry at hypocrisy, wherever he might find it. When people go through the motions and they act spiritual, religious, but there's really no fruit of relationship, that is never what God intended. And that's why this picture is here. It is not only a picture of a dead nation. This is a picture of people that kind of bear religiosity, wear nice little garments. And they got little actions going on and holy water and, bear, you know, doing the incense thing. And they've got different events that they want to put people through. You got people singing songs, but there's no heart to it. You got people that might throw a little bit of money and they say, well, I'm, I'm giving or I'm giving my tithe or something like that. But they're not doing it as an act of worship. God says, I know your heart and I desire that you give me a first place love. And the Israel, nation Israel had completely missed it. You see, God, after he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And Jesus is it. He's the Messiah. And they rejected him. And so Jesus says, this isn't it. And I'm going to give you a picture. This fig tree dies. It withers. It has no fruit. God desires to bear fruit through his people. Doesn't any gardener? You, me. God desires to bear fruit through our lives. That we are to be like a fig tree that bears fruit in the spring and in the fall. And for Israel, they weren't bearing any fruit, but they looked real religious. And so Jesus curses this fig tree. It is just a picture of what is to come. Because in A.D. 70, the Romans come in and they literally destroy Jerusalem. This beautiful temple, I mean, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was destroyed in A.D. 70. The people, they were killed and they were put on the run. And their nation was decimated because judgment had come. Because why? They had said, we will enter into a covenant with you. That is, when you look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the people of Israel said, you will be our God. We will follow you. We will do what you say. But in actuality, they completely had abandoned God. They were out on their own program. They were actually converting people into hypocrisy and not into authentic relationship with him. And God says, now judgment has come like a fig tree that is withered instantly. And so it happened. And so what we have here in these first couple verses, this is a picture of a spiritually dead nation. But then in verses 20 through 22, he's going to give us the practice of a spiritually alive people. Look at verse 20. 
Well, you see here in verse 19, he says, seeing a lone fig tree on the road, he came to it, found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, whoa, 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 whoa. How did the fig tree wither it all, all at once? How did, whoa. I mean, Jesus has done a lot of miracles. You would think that they'd go, wow. Just, just did another one. I mean, he had people walking on the water. He walked on water, fed 5,000, fed 4,000. He raised people from the dead. Lame people could walk. I mean, and Jesus does it. And they're just like, whoa, how did, how did you do that to the tree? They're amazed. And they, in fact, they even asked him about it. And they said, hey, how did the fig tree wither all at once? They're asking a physical question. But Jesus wants to talk about spiritual realities. Jesus is saying, you know, you want to know how the fig tree withered. But let me tell you, I want to tell you how you truly live. You want to you want to talk about how does a nation die? I want to tell you about how a people truly live in me. So they're asking this question. How did this happen? In verse 21. And Jesus answered and said to them, truly, anytime you see that in the Bible, you want to pay real close attention. He's telling you, you got to know this. The truth of the matter is this. I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, he's saying, I want to talk to you about life. You see, true spiritual life is found by having faith and relationship with me. And so he says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, he's actually saying, you got a trust in me. You believe in me. Your confidence is in me and you do not doubt. This is how you will truly experience life. And one of the keys to truly demonstrating that we have a faith in God is that we actually pray. Prayer is God's means by which he works his power through his people. But he desires that we seek his face, we talk to him, we truly have our confidence in him. And so biblical faith is us having confidence in God for him to accomplish his work. That doesn't mean that God is going to do everything we say. Some people take this verse, like in verse 22, and says, well, that's it. This is kind of a name it or claim it, that God will do whatever I ask him to do. In actuality, when you look at faith in the Bible, it's not only a a belief and a confidence that God can accomplish whatever he says he's going to accomplish, but it is a submission to his will. It's a confidence in his wisdom and power, and it's an assurance of his love. God, you can do this, but I want not my will but yours to be done. And Jesus is saying, I want my people to be communicating with me to trust me, to know me, to express that they love me, and to do so by, fr- by prayer. People talk about having faith. I mean, that's pretty common. He's a person of faith. But what is your faith in? Because your faith is only good as the object in which it is placed. And so it's not faith in faith. It's not faith in your plans or your dreams or your ideas. It's faith that God will accomplish his work. And whatever he's revealed in his word We know that we can ask by faith because he is in the process of accomplishing these things. So faith is not like a force, like I have faith, kind of like a Luke Skywalker sort of deal, like the force. 
But faith is an active trust in God. It's a confidence in his power and his love. We put our faith in God's his presence. We put it in his faith in his precepts, what he's revealed in his word, in his power, his ability to accomplish what he says he is going to do. And we put our faith in his plan. Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be involved in my work of seeing people come to know me with the gospel going out and people growing in me. And I will give you the strength to do as I've asked, but you've got to learn to come and be dependent upon me. And so we develop our faith in God as we learn to love him and trust him. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I want you to experience my power in your life. But you know how this happens? It happens through prayer. Now, let me tell you, this isn't the first time that Jesus talked about faith and prayer. You see, the apostles... The apostles had to learn this lesson multiple times, just like you and I do. Do you know what the apostles' problem was? Even back in Matthew chapter 17, remember they, brought, they, were, they had this boy and he was demon-possessed and they couldn't cast out the demon, even though they had done it multiple times before. Jesus had actually sent them out. And when they came to Jesus and said, hey, how is it that you could do it but we couldn't? Jesus says, you know what? This only comes out through prayer. You see, one of our biggest problems is this. We have a great degree of self-confidence, and we have severe prayerlessness. We actually think that we can do it on our own. And we might just add a little prayer like, you know, God, bless my plans, or just help me to do what I want to do. But that's not how it works. We are to be a people dependent upon God in very evident and obvious ways. You see, the twelve had to learn this. The Lord had the power to do whatever he wanted when he wanted to accomplish his father's will. But not you and I. You and I, we have to learn to depend upon God in prayer. And that sometimes means that we have to wait. But when we wait for things, we wait for God to work. You know what that does? That strengthens us. Kind of like an athlete. He lifts heavier weights or a runner who runs longer distances. We grow stronger as we learn to pray and wait upon the Lord. And Jesus' point is this. You and I, we have to learn how to persistently pray. Now, let me just tell you, this is where I think we've got severe breakdown. I look at my own life. I'm like, how much is this is is Grant just running hard and doing things? Or how much is it of this Grant praying and actively depending upon the Lord to do his work? Now, I'm slow and you guys all know that. And I'm learning that if any work is to be done, it's going to be done on my knees, seeking the Lord. It's going to be done learning how to pray. Pray when I'm working. Pray when I'm walking. Pray when I'm running. I have, and I'm learning, that if the work is going to be done, just like Jesus said, it's going to be done through him. Now, Jesus said, you know what? You're going to be able to tell, you could This deal with the fig tree, you're amazed by that? Jesus said this, you know what? I tell you this, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, and it will happen. Now, is Jesus saying, whoa, you're going to be able to start making some pretty geological changes in the earth? Is that what he's after? No. This is actually a figure of speech, very popular in Judaism, when to move mountains was to be considered to do something that would be almost impossible. Something like, whoa, this is huge. And that's what Jesus is referring to. You're going to be able to do things that are seemingly impossible in your strength. But in my strength, 
When you come seek me and you have a faith that loves me, trusts me, and desires to obey me, you got that kind of faith? You come to me, I'm going to do my work through you. I want to. I want to bear fruit through your lives, just like I want to bear fruit through Israel. And let me tell you, it's really easy to get nice and religious and comfortable and rather complacent Christianity. You got the right answers and you got a little Bible that you hang off your right arm as like a little Christmas tree ornament. It's real easy to slip into modes and patterns of functional Christianity when Jesus wants a vibrant faith. And you know how this is fostered? It's fostered through prayer as you and I learn to commune and converse with God. Faith responds to God with trust, love and obedience. When we truly believe in God, we respond to him with trust, love, and obedience. When you hear about Jesus and that he dies and pays the penalty for your sins, and that he's been resurrected so that you might experience true life, and you're like, man, I'm a huge sinner. You mean Jesus has paid it all for me? Man, I'm turning from my sin and brokenness, and I'm believing in Jesus You have the absolute assurance that you have forgiveness. But this same relationship that has started with Jesus of trust and love, obedience, it is this gospel that God wants us to continue to grow in so that he will bear fruit through our lives. This is what he intends. And let me just talk about what spiritual fruit looks like. Spiritual fruit comes from a heart that trusts and loves God. Let me ask you, do you believe in God? Many people go, yeah. Got that. I I believe in God. Let me ask you, do you love him? Well, I mean, I believe. Isn't that good enough? Actual biblical faith is tied with it a deep love. If you believe in God, you love him. You desire to go his way. It's not like, well, I got God on my side or I'm on his team, so to speak. It's that you trust in him and you love him. And it's through this relationship that God actually bears fruit through our life. Spiritual fruit comes from a heart that loves and trusts God. Let me just tell you some different ways it's manifested. It's manifested in our character. There's some verses you you have to know and you'll need to memorize. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. God wants to bear fruit through our character, in our relationships, in our circumstances. You're saying, okay, what does this look like? What does spiritual fruit look like? He actually tells you, this is what God is seeking to develop in you. Love, joy, peace, patience. I want you to think in terms of your relationships. Do you not need a greater love? Think about it. If, you have a, if you're in a difficult relationship and you're having trouble loving someone, you can't just say, well, I'm going to just work it out and I'm going to somehow force myself to love this person. Come on. You can't do that. But ask God, Lord, help me, and he will. He helps create joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you know where this comes from? It comes from God. When you hear self-control, think about this. Think about emotional control. Think about how many times a couple set of circumstances go off and you just, you're off. Ever happened to you? No, of course it has, right? Yes. Of course. Does it happen to me? Yes. Do I like it? I hate it. It's an indication that I need to pray so that God will help me exercise the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. 
You know what else? Spiritual fruit comes through our worship. When you're worshiping God, pray. If there is something going on in the music or between songs, don't just like think about your shopping list or something like that. Pray, connect, commune with God. Let me tell you else where spiritual fruit comes from. It comes in our work. God has a calling in your life. I have figured out that God has called me to be a pastor. But God has a calling on your life. Whether you're at home, working with your children, you're working at some sort of job. It doesn't matter where God has placed you. He has a calling upon your life. He wants to bear his fruit through your life. And you know how he does that? He does it through prayer. Now, some of your work environments might be toxic. I've worked in some great work environments. I've worked in some ones that are just like, this is driving me crazy. I remember when I was working on my master's degree. Um, I had to leave my nice insurance job, and I had two part-time jobs. One of those was working in a warehouse for Boise Cascade, loading trucks on Swan Island in Portland. And I was working, like, late hours. I had a thing called Flex Force. You know, I didn't get home till like, early in the morning. And they'd have this heavy metal music blaring down on these loudspeakers in this huge warehouse. And it would be blaring classic rock, you know, and all this just heavy metal rock stuff, man. And I could only listen to that so much. Sometimes I literally have to go on my break and just sit in my car and pray and regain sanity. Because it just had a way of just wearing you down. And who knows what would happen when you just kind of be brought down to kind of a base level. So we have to pray. You have difficulties in your job? God wants to bear fruit through your life and your situation. You know what we need to do? Let's stop griping and let's start praying. You know where else God wants to bear fruit? In your ministry. He wants you to have some way that you're serving him in some capacity. It could be anything from pulling weeds to working with our children to leading a a small group. And you know how you accomplish the work of the ministry? You pray. You talk to God. And let me give you another area where God wants to bear fruit. It's through our giving. You see, when we give to the Lord, when when you actually give, if you're just giving just a small amount, like I will never notice this $2 that's no longer in my pocket, then it, of course, has no bearing in your life whatsoever. But when you've learned the joy of giving sacrificially and graciously, when you give, when you place that in that, that envelope into that basket each month, or when you send it in, do so with a prayer and say, God, this is an expression of worship and of devotion to you. Thank you for your goodness and your presence and your grace in my life. And when we do this, God accomplishes his work. He's glorified and you grow deeper. And so how do we do this? We learn to love God. And as we learn to love God, we learn to pray. Think about it. Who do you like to talk to? You like to talk to people you love, right? Isn't that how this works? And if you're like, you know what, Grant? I, I'm not sure about the spiritual fruit in my life. You got me a little bit worried right at the moment here. I'm feeling a little stressed out. How is it that I may not be bearing a whole lot of fruit? Let me just tell you the, the antidote, the answer to that question. We bear fruit by learning how lovely God is. The more you see the loveliness of Christ, how he loves you unconditionally, how he's truly paid for all of your sins, the pressure's off, you're forgiven, anxiety doesn't have to rule your life because the presence of Christ is now within you. When you realize daily you keep coming to the cross and you realize the power of the resurrection, that's when you're released to truly bear fruit. It's much more organic. You can't just say, I'll just pray more, or I'll just start being more loving. No, the reality is 
you learn to experience the love of God. And this is how it works. The more you learn how to how lovely God is, the more you want to pray and talk to him. If you have little prayer in your life, perhaps you have little love for God. Maybe you've settled for a shallow little picture of who Jesus is, who the the powerful Trinity, the one triune God is. Grow deep by coming to know him. And when we come to know who he is, you're going to find you're going to follow that up with prayer. Jesus made this real interesting statement in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when you hear that word abide, you might go, oh, man, that's one of those religious words I just never get. You think of someone who's abiding and you kind of feel like they just are those people that glow. You know, the people that kind of like wake up at four in the morning and they have a little gold harp right next to their bed and they pick it up and they start singing praise songs. And you kind of think those people are abiding. But me, I'm laying in my bed and I've got my face planted in my pillow and I'm I'm not so much abiding. And you let me tell you what the word abide means. It means literally to make your home in to make your home in God, in Christ himself. To enjoy him, to rejoice in him, to believe in him, to realize that his power is everything to you, that you thrive upon his presence and he is always with you. When we learn to live like this, this is abiding. And Jesus says, when you're learning to talk to me as you go through the day, before your meetings, as you finish your day, as you begin your day, before your meals, with your kids, before practice, after practice. Before a decision, before a major event, before you give, as you learn to talk with me and find how great and gracious I am to you, you find yourself living and abiding in me. And let me tell you who didn't miss this lesson. The apostles. Remember in the early church, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, they had a little problem. Folks weren't getting enough food, but the apostles said, you know what? We're going to find some highly qualified spiritual men and they're going to take care of this problem. But we will not stop prayer And the teaching of the word. We are going to devote ourselves to prayer and the word. Why? Because prayer is the means by which we connect with God. It's the means by which we experience his power. And you know what the word does? Do you know why we spend daily time in the word? Because the word fuels our faith. You read about the God and what he's accomplished in the word and what he's doing through your life. It fuels our faith. And friends, let me just tell you the vision of our church. We're like an orchard. We're like these little, some of us are saplings and some have been around for a few years and some are growing and bearing much fruit. But our vision is simply this, growing deep, reaching out. As you and I grow deep in our relationship with Christ, we realize how good, how gracious, how lovely he is. The residual effect is that we bear the fruit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and all these things we spoke of as a result of our relationship with God. And friends, As a church, we want to be praying and pursuing God's will in our life as individuals, in our homes, in our community, in our church, in our world. Now, let me tell you, we're just about ready to take a serious next step as a church. We have been on a journey. We're seeing God do the amazing in our midst. But let me tell you, we will not take this step apart from all of us learning to pray, to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to God. You know, we've been telling you, we've been working with architects and stuff on these plans. Here's something you need to know. Before every single meeting that we have, and at the end of every meeting we have, even with the architects, do you know what we do? We pray. Because this is God working in our midst. 
We know that nothing can be accomplished apart from him, nor do we want to live that way. So, friends, what we need to know is that spiritual fruit in our lives comes from a dependent faith upon God. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this amazing passage. And you know about us and where we're at. Lord, there are people here that are bearing significant fruit. And obviously, they have learned to connect with you, to talk with you, to pray. I pray, Father, their tribe might increase and they'd be greatly encouraged by how you're at work in their lives. And there's others of us who, this is a passage that really confronts us head on. And Lord, we just come before you in just a simple childlike confession and just say, Lord, do your work in us. Help us to see how great and gracious you are. Help us to grow in a love of Jesus so that we'll talk to him all the more. So there'll be much prayer because there is much love. And so we ask this, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.